0: Carol and I feel greatly loved and welcomed every time we come back to Rincon. even though we almost missed the exit uh, on 95 yesterday, and that was one of those marital moments. Honey, I need you navigating. <laughs> but anyway, we are here, and as I was saying in this, the, uh, the hour earlier, you guys have been partners with us like... Philippi was for the Apostle Paul, and I'm not equating myself to be an apostle, but I'm simply saying you were for partners from the first day until now with us, and for that uh, we are so thankful, and it's great to see so many of you again, and if we forget your names, please just come up and say my name is so-and-so, because Cheryl and I love to meet you and and to see even families growing and new people coming to the church. I think I just had a chance to meet, is it Illumidae? Did I say that's great? And your wife and children are so happy that you guys have made it to Rinkin. I want to bring to you uh, a word this morning from the end of Matthew 9. And you can turn there, that's fine. You know, one thing that I love in watching sporting events is when... um, you're able to see fans that are on camera up on the scoreboard or the Jumbotron, and you get to just watch them cheering on or talking to their friends, and you just get to watch them enjoying that moment, and uh, sometimes they don't realize uh, that they're up on the Jumbotron. They, they are the focus for 60, 70, 80,000 people uh, that are able to see uh, watch their reaction to what's unfolding before them. You know how it is with sometimes you can look. We can look but not see. Uh, maybe we're hearing but we haven't really listened. Or we look but we don't see our neighbor And we don't see their need for a shepherd king to save them. They are harassed and helpless. We do not look and we very rarely see with seeing eyes and very rarely feel our neighbor's plight. Where with empathy, we we put ourselves in their situation. We forget in moments that like us they too are in need of god's divine rescue from sin and too often we don't marvel just like we don't marvel at god's glory we there's a sense of which we lose our awe and and we do not mourn for those who live with no sense of appreciation for the glory of God in Christ Jesus. We feel sad for all types of things. We mourn when orcas and whales are beached and cannot get water under them. But we sometimes just lose our sense of awe for God's glory and we don't mourn for those who are living with no sense of of alignment with why God created him, and that is for his glory. So this morning, with that in mind, I want you to turn with me to Matthew 9, and we'll look at verses 35 through 39. And then I'd like to read with you the first and fifth verse of Matthew 10. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into the harvest, into his harvest. And then chapter ten, verse one, and he called to him, his twelve disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And then verse five, these twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. I'll read verse 6, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. This is God's Word and it is good. Ask you a question um, as you think of your life in the course of a week, what do you look at? Who do you see? Are you myopic? Is your view just like what's right in front of you, or is your view, Father? Like right now, I can look out that window that f- or that full glass door at the back there, and I can probably see 200 yards into past the parking lot in the field into into the woods. See just a little bit farther than, say, my manuscript here on on the pulpit. What What do you look at? What do you see? Where are your interests? Where do they lie? What are the things that you're planning on? What are the things you're praying for? Or even maybe better, in the course of a week, who are you praying for? What moves you? What stirs up compassion within you for your neighbor? I think one of the legacies of Jonathan Edwards, we understand that the Christian life is about our affections, the things that we prize, the things we love, the things we hate, the things that we mourn for. When you consider your neighbor, what does love look like? Do you realize, do you actually believe that really the opposite, the opposite... Of love for our neighbor is not hatred, but so much more like something like indifference. It's a simple not caring. This kind of in 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 this uh, epidemic of simply seared emotion, no feeling, no sense of compassion our neighbors at a distance who are perishing without the hope of the gospel. Well, as we look at Matthew 9 this morning, I want to make this very simple. Here's the outline for Matthew 9, 35 through 39, as we look at these words, as Matthew narrates and then Jesus speaks. First, in verse 35, we'll see what is seen. We will see what is seen. Verse 36, by the way, I call that what is seen part one, verse 36 is what is unseen. Then verse thirty seven is what is seen part two, and then finally what must be done in verse thirty-eight. It's helpful to remember as we consider the Matthew's gospel that uh, Matthew has this kind of back and forth of chunks of Narrating what's going on, and then chunks of Jesus' teaching. And twice at the end uh, in Matthew 4, you can look there in Matthew 4, 23 through 25, there's this summary of what Jesus of Jesus' ministry. And you see the same thing here in Matthew 9 uh, verse 35. And Jesus, uh, we, we are told by Matthew. What is seen? He tells us, essentially, Matthew tells us what we too could have observed uh, had we been there. He says there in verse 35, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And he tells us that same thing back in chapter 4, verse twenty three. In Matthew here, he employs these participles, words that end in ing to describe Jesus' activity. And it, it kind of communicates this sense of continuous, ongoing, uninterrupted, uh, kind of uninterrupted, uninterrupted activity. Jesus is teaching in their synagogues. He's pray, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He's healing kind of all types or every type of disease and sickness. And the son of God had this word and deed ministry. Think, head, heart and hands. He taught. And he and he taught wisely, right? You see he taught in their synagogue, in their in their synagogues. He preached he was there with the message of the kingdom but he cared for very real the the realities of sick and afflicted men women and children he wasn't indifferent to it it was a description of what Jesus did his ministry was observable there's a um I love the use of drones now, like in some YouTube videos. So there's this one guy that I, there's this fishing kind of thing that I subscribe to. Because when I'm in China, in our sixth floor apartment, I don't have a lot of opportunities to fish. And I grew up in South Florida on a canal, and I love to fish both salt and freshwater fishing. But there's this video um, from the, the coast of Southeast Florida that shows this migration of black tip sharks along the coast of Florida. But those black tip sharks that are normally kind of hitting the schools of bait fish are preyed upon by very big hammerhead sharks. And you'll see like 100, 200 black tip sharks that are maybe five, six feet long. And this drone's flying over them. And then you see these 12 and 14 foot hammerheads going in there. And these black tips just scatter. But... It's there, but it's far more observable because of the use of this drone flying overhead. Well, here's Jesus. He's teaching in the Son of God. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He's going about to all these different cities and villages, and he's healing every disease and every affliction. And Matthew kind of gives us the drone's eye view of this holistic ministry of the Son of God, who is bringing the truth and the good news of the kingdom. But he's not indifferent to the realities of human suffering. And, and, and so Matthew describes this for us. And so we kind of see what is seen, part one. Look at verse 36 for what is unseen. He tells us what we might not have known if we had been present. Now, Leland Ryken in his book... Words of Delight, he calls this, it's kind of the authorial, it's, it's a technical term. Let's just call it this way, let me change it. It's the insertion by the author or the narrator of what you could not have known unless you had some ability to kind of like run a CAT scan or do an x-ray of the situation. It's that inserting of an editorial comment where the author is telling us what is completely invisible to the naked eye. And so Matthew says this. He says, when he saw the crowds, or literally seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And Matthew draws us into the narrative and he describes Jesus' emotional response. I think it's helpful for a moment to remember this. It was the British theologian, it was the, the writer Octavius Winslow in his book, The Sympathy of Christ, he speaks of the Lord Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, who was the pinnacle of perfection of all the human of all human emotion in one person who could feel who could express who could demonstrate legitimate unsinful anger who could feel and express unmixed unpolluted without any admixture uncorrupted love who could feel the deepest, most genuine, down to the gut sympathy for others, so that Matthew's there telling us what we wouldn't know unless he describes it, that Jesus had compassion on them. That as He looked on these crowds, these crowds whom He administered as the Son of God, He says He felt He had compassion for them. And he describes his emotional response. And it's much richer and fuller than you might imagine. You know, yesterday, it's not a big deal. We were at Nick and Felicia's. And I I think it it was Avery that didn't want her panini quite cooked the way Daddy was cooking. And right there on her right eye, there's just like, her, te- her eyes just went red immediately. And there's a single tear that trickled right there. And I wanted to take off her glasses and just do this and just put my arms around her, okay? But the Lord Jesus, in this incredibly rich way, as only He could do, He looks on the crowds and as God incarnate feels this depth of compassion and tender love because he sees them. He sees them not as a source of irritation like the person that's tailgating you on I-95 or or, or cuts in front of you or doesn't use a blinker. But he saw them in need of rescue. He saw them as lost. He saw them. And remember, this is the Lord Jesus of whom the writer in the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, is that He is the one that was tempted in every way as we were. But what? He was tempted in every way. Think about that. In the veil, sharing the veil of our humanity, but yet was without sin. Okay, now, here's the Lord Jesus feeling this compassion that, that we would not know unless Matthew tells us. He has this, there's this depth where he looked. He didn't simply look, he saw. He didn't simply see, he felt. That type, this deep, deep pity for those in distress where that kind of moves you to tears. It, kind of, it takes your breath away. You feel gutted. You're, like your legs are removed out from under you, where you cannot even move. You're paralyzed that with the sense of identity with the pain of those you're looking at. And I think Paul... I think Paul possessed that type of feeling for the church at Philippi when he said this in Philippians 1.8, he said, for God is my witness how I yearn, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I think this type of compassion that the Lord Jesus felt is like this. Have you ever been like at a wedding reception? you're You're in a situation, it's a happy time. But there's normally, if you have 100 people in a happy time, there's one person that's, that's anguished. They're, there's something going on. It's not been a great day. They're in the midst of celebration, but they're really hurting. And then there are those, uh, those that have this gift of mercy, and they kind of have this like spiritual antenna that they, they, though no one else sees, they're the ones that can look and pick up the body the body language, the vibe, and their intent is kind of like... And they can see, in the, even in the midst of a celebration, that someone's really less than happy. Someone's got something they're dealing with. This is the Lord Jesus. As Matthew's describing, that the Son of God, in the pinnacle of human emotion perfected, saw the crowds felt compassion, and understood that they really were in the need of divine rescue. Well, third, I want us to see in verse 37, what is seen, part two. And Jesus communicates here a new word picture by what he says. You'll notice back to back, very interesting, that Matthew uses a livestock word picture that Jesus sees the crowds as sheep, without a shepherd to lead and provide and protect them. And Matthew flips this from livestock and shepherdless sheep to an agricultural picture of fields, okay, and harvest. That's what he does. The the metaphor changes here. But really, Matthew's referring to the same thing. Or Jesus is referring to the same thing. You see, the shepherd king, the shepherd king, Matthew describes as having looked out on the multitudes and that he saw them in the same way that you might see shepherd not having the protection in leadership in care or sheep. Not having the protection and care and leadership of a shepherd. And then he juxtaposes that, he puts that right next to Jesus' words. Now, as he speaks as the great shepherd king, and he, so he says, he knew he has this audience. His disciples were watching, his disciples were listening. They're hanging there on every word. And so Jesus states two indisputable facts. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. And what our ESV Bibles really don't show us is there's this little Greek particle that sets the very first half of verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, sets it in like bold contrast to the second half of the verse. But, and it's kind of embedded in that little word, but the labors are few. It's the little Greek word, Men. It's kind of this idea if maybe you have a military operation and it's being reviewed or it's something at work, maybe at Gulfstream, let's say um, you've had a project, there's a project, and you've worked on this project, and finally it's over, and you kind of take a military approach three up, three down. So, on the one hand, A, B, C were positive. But now, on the other hand, ABC, these things went well. But on the other hand, ABC, these things didn't go so well. They could use some improvement. And that's the idea here. On the one hand, indisputable fact number one, the harvest is plentiful. But on the other hand, indisputable fact number two, the laborers are few. No one could take issue with the quality or quantity of the harvest. It's not an issue. And the fact that the laborers are few is established by comparison to the greatness and the, plenty in it, and, and the plenty of the harvest. You know, I do think that every summer in the U.S., in certain churches where people enjoy having gardens, Somewhere around July 10th to July 15th, maybe July 20th, there is this point where there's an inversion with people's uh, gardens at their home. And all of a sudden, you understand by how people begin to bring tomatoes and squash and cucumbers and green beans to their friends. Like they bring them sometime to church or people visit and People show up and they have like tomatoes or a couple squash. And then they don't want to tell you this, but they've had zucchini four nights in a row. And you know what? Their kids are giving them grief. They're ready to give them up. All right, there's that sense of funniness. There is that kind of the harvest, in this case, the summer, the ubiquitous all-around, ever-present summer vegetables of tomatoes, green beans, cucumbers, yellow squash, zucchini... Fair enough. Maybe you hit that point with okra. It's plentiful. And you've had your fill. And so you, you, you need to kind of start giving it away. That's what's happening here. And Jesus makes this statement with two indisputable facts right after Matthew said that the Son of God looked. He didn't simply look, but He saw with seeing eyes real need of sinners for God's rescue activity. Now, let's look in verse 38. What must be done? It's interesting. He makes Jesus... He states these two indisputable facts. One statement. The harvest is plentiful. On one hand, the harvest is plentiful. But on the other, the labors by comparison are few. And so He says, Therefore... Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into... Whose harvest, by the way? Whose harvest? His harvest. Have you ever really thought about what Jesus urged on His disciples here in verse 38? And you might react and think, "Well, this is kind of like saying, when Jesus says, okay, here's this great harvest, it's plentiful fact one fact two by comparison to the amount of the harvest the quantity of the laborers are few and jesus says pray and it's almost like let's just study the possible solutions or i'll think about it it's like when a child says daddy will you play catch with me when we get home and dad says i'll think about it or one of your friends says to you hey we should get together sometime and you realizing, well, what does that mean? It's like three years later. No, let's put a date on it. It just sounds, you can interpret this to see this is kind of tentative. You might think, why, what, if the need is for workers, why are we simply praying? Think about your reaction to Jesus' imperative here of what must be done. It, some of you might think this seems like an overemphasis on the sovereignty of God. Because there's always, right? They, someone said there's three types of people those who, those who make things happen, those who watch things happen, and those who wonder what happened. And there's some in certain situations that are like, we don't need to pray, we need to take action. You know, like there's some of us that are wired to be more EMTs, but others are more, let's study. Let's study what's happened. And others are like, we don't need to study. We need to take action. You know, bing. And I think some of us would be, let's just get to the harvest. And Jesus says, no. He says to his disciples, in light of these two indisputable facts, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. This word, therefore, on some levels, a word of consequence. But it's also kind of the word, it's a word of saying, if this is true, then this implies this. Because there's such a great shortfall, Jesus doesn't say get into recruitment mode. He says get into the mode of praying. And the consequence of the shortfall of workers is that we must not have a shortfall in praying. We're to pray, okay? And even better is to pray earnestly like we mean it. I love this. When you see in little children sometimes how, like, they're so serious, they're so enthusiastic about doing something. When they set their minds and, like, their little eyebrows and their their, their forehead's really furrowed with thought and action and intensity. Do we pray? Are we praying like little children with that degree of earnestness? Would we be like John Knox and say, give me Scotland or I die? Like, do we really long and yearn for that? What are the things that rule the strongest desires of our heart? And look who Jesus intended to be the object of our passionate request. He says, look, pray to the Lord of the harvest. We're not, just, we're not just talking like, we're not just recording a message here on a phone. We're, we're, we're doing something impersonally. He says, you pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would thrust, literally thrust laborers into his harvest. Okay, now, I want you to imagine a scene, a moment. Imagine a, a wheat farm in rural Kansas, a thousand acres right now, a thousand acres, okay? So that's like a mile, a little over a mile this way, a mile, maybe a mile and a quarter this way, and a mile and a quarter that way. Nothing but ripe wheat, a thousand acres. And how crazy would it be if someone says, look, pray that the owner of the wheat fields would send out workers into his own field. No. In June, in Kansas, with thousand acre farms full of ripe wheat, professional farmers already have a plan for how they're going to harvest their wheat. And God has a plan for how he's going to send out laborers into his own field. Farmers with ripe wheat fields naturally plant for the amount of equipment and manpower they need. They know that every year, that's probably somewhere around June 15th, and they need, unless they have crazy rain, that's going to be typical, all right, based on when they plant their seed. And when Jesus says these words, we hardly think it necessary. When he says, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his harvest, we think that's hardly necessary, right? Because we think, doesn't God instinctively have a regard for the souls of men? Yes. Doesn't God instinctively have a regard for crowds like harassed and helpless sheep? Yes. Doesn't God instinctively, as Savior, have a heart for fields full and white and ripe for harvest? Yes. And it brings us to the single most important laws or law of the harvest from this passage. Many of you know... If you're familiar, there's three basic laws of the harvest, right? The three laws of the harvest normally are this. And some of you know, you reap what you sow, you sow before you reap, and in fruitfulness you always hope that you reap more than you sow. But there's another law of the harvest from these final verses in Matthew 9, Okay. And the answer is implied in verse 1 here of Matthew 10. Right after this saying and this call to pray that the Lord of the harvest would thrust out laborers into his harvest, Jesus immediately calls the disciples to himself and he grants them authority to perform similar works to his own. And then he sends them out, verse 5, on mission. So the law of the harvest from Matthew 9, verses 35 through 38, kind of what you might say is a fourth law of the harvest is this. It's that you and I are the very answer to our own prayers to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. It reminds me of my friend. My friend who uh, was a public relations guy back in Greenville. When he was 15... He said, dad, he said, could you give me 50 bucks? Could you give me 50 bucks? No, no dad, no son. He said, I'll give you a mower, okay? I'll give you a lawnmower. And you know what you can do? You can go work and you find a way to make your own 50 bucks. You'll be the answer to your own request for 50 bucks. The law of the harvest, a law of the harvest from Matthew Chapter 9 here is that we are the very answer to our prayer to the Lord of the harvest to thrust laborers into his harvest. All right. He invites us into his rescue mission. We're not just spectators. We're participants. We're on the field of play. We're not on the sidelines. And as the Son of God went teaching and preaching and healing, so must we be with holistic heads, hands, and hearts type of ministry by every member of the body of Christ. Well, how do we apply this passage? And I want to offer five quick applications from our text. Number one, our ministry, our ministry as the body of Christ must mirror Jesus' holistic ministry. We must be whole persons ministering to whole persons. Our ministry must be in word and deed. And our sight should be set to bring the life of Jesus to heads, hearts, and hands by the sanctified use of our own heads and hearts and hands. And practically, when some of us are wired more toward a word ministry, those of you who are more practically behind the scene type of people should not look down on those that are maybe more word-oriented, But you should celebrate that. And those of you who want to share and speak the Word of God should celebrate those who are more behind the scenes. in, In that type of church where we celebrate, where we celebrate and encourage the varietal of gifts in the body of Christ, that's a healthy church. We must preach the gospel, but we must be prepared to love people in very practical ways and through very messy seasons of life. I have a question. Are you yielding all of you to the Lord Jesus for His interest in the way you serve? Or are you playing or toying or with submitting to Him as Lordship? And when you think about your gifts, I was talking to someone back before the service who's maybe going to retire in a year from now, and he's thinking, how can you, He use His time and talent and treasures When he retires from regular employment a year from now, are you thinking about how you can offer head, heart, and hands of all that you are um, to the Lord Jesus? Some of you, what's the song by John Legend, All of You, All of Me? I love that song. It's kind of very romantic. One day, maybe I'll get to preach it. I mean, preach it, sing it to Cheryl. Do you offer up all of you? Do you offer up all of you to the Lord Jesus? Yeah. Second, not only must our ministry mirror Jesus' holistic ministry, but our vision must mirror Jesus' compassionate vision. Pray that you not only look, but that you see others not in terms of judgment, but with a compassionate Eyes and minds of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to say just a word of application. Those of us that are like in our 40s and 50s, as we age, we can get curmudgeon We can sometimes get irritated with younger generations. Rather than celebrating millennials and their strengths, for example, that they bring to the church. We're like, we wish millennials could be like this. Why don't we start celebrating... And loving and trying to see the strengths of those who are younger than us, those who are older than us, rather than judge. Rather than judge differences, why don't we celebrate and see how we can strengthen one another, even cross-generationally. And do that with the compassionate eyes in mind of Christ. You know, looking is not the same thing as seeing. And Jesus didn't simply look, He saw. And He saw with His piercing and compassionate perception the very real plight of the crowds. And it was not just in mass. You know, he saw individuals like individual sheep who, har- who were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He knew their weaknesses. He saw their vulnerability. He saw their stress but he also saw their prospects. Do you pray that God would soften your heart for more compassionate love and tenderness to those who are lost? Or is your life like just this maelstrom around all that's you? Like your pay, your work, your vacation plans, your grass that needs to be cut, your problems... Or can you get out like, are you able to rise up and cultivate this care for your neighbors? Like those in your own body, your own family, your own community group, your own neighborhood. Are you cultivating that in a way that reflects the very love of the Son of God? I want to encourage us to do that today. Do you think, honestly, like, do you really believe, but for the grace of God, I would be in this, the exact same position? In fact, it was, you remember what Paul says? He asked the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4.7. Real simple question. Hey, uh, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? Well, there's a third application as we think about Matthew 9, and that is our assessment of the harvest must mirror jesus assessment it makes sense it makes sense that the harvest is plentiful because it's god's harvest and we should know this real sense of optimism as we go to the work the lamb who was slain really has purchased men from god from every tribe and language and people and nation to form this whole new redeemed community of worshipers god doesn't play he doesn't play God really accomplished His stuff, and He did at the cross. And you and I might play church, but God did not play at the cross. And what was accomplished there was the the culmination, was the fulfillment of that, that covenant of redemption from eternity. Jesus Christ will know His inheritance. And so we know that the harvest is and will be plentiful. Yeah, there will be seasons, right? There are seasons. It's three steps forward and two steps back. And we've got to encourage one another to keep persevering and to place our eyes on the prize and on the hope of the gospel. And there is a very real issue with a shortfall of workers. That's what Jesus is assessing. And there should be both this sober but hopeful assessing of the harvest that is His harvest. Now, fourthly, we are the answer to our own prayers. Our obedience to Jesus' command to pray for harvest workers must include this awareness that we, the church, are those harvest workers. God has not only rescued us, but He's also brought us into His great rescue ambition. It's like after an accident... It's like being loaded into the ambulance and on the way to the hospital being recruited, promoted, and trained to be one of the workers in the ambulance. That's what God's rescue mission looks like. Okay? And we cannot simply delegate it away. We cannot sanitize this mission. Yes, money is required. But the mission, the cause, requires men and women who will go on mission to the hard and dark places to bring the light of the glory of God that is only revealed in the gospel of his dear son to those places and we have to say with John he's got to increase in John 3:30 and we must increase it's not our own kingdom in our own name that we're called to seek but his We're called to build His church and not simply build bigger barns for ourselves while our lives are this endless cycle of eating and drinking and building and planning and marrying and being given in marriage with no thought to those who are perishing by the hour. Dads, moms, are you helping your children get their eyes up to consider those in other places, in other nations, to pray for, to become aware of, to love, to think about how to bring the gospel to children, to men and women who speak different languages, who culturally live different, whose skin color looks different. Now, finally, and we'll be done. We go to this work together, fifth application. We always go do this work together. By His strength and for His glory. By the way, there's no other choices on the menu. Ready? Here's the menu. You've just opened. You've just come and you open the menu. And there's two choices on the menu. Go or send. Hold the rope in faithful support or be on the end of the rope descending into the darkness with gospel candlelight. You pick. But you have to pick one. Hold the rope or hold the candle. But get your hands out of your pockets. Stop sitting on your hands. And if you're a Christian, guess what? Good news and bad news. The bad news is you have to work. But the good news is you are invited and called into the greatest cause and greatest mission in the world. To you it has been granted, to us as the people of God, it's been granted both the privilege and responsibility to participate in God's rescue mission of harassed and helpless sinners. And in case we forgot, you and I were once in that same condition apart from God's gracious intervention. In closing, do you remember those fans on the scoreboard, those fans on the Jumbotron? They're excited and smiling. And then all of a sudden, someone like goes like, hey, that's you. And they have this realization. Not only were they on camera, but they didn't know that. But all of a sudden, and 80,000 people saw them up there. But then they realized, hey, I'm up there. There are, I'm on the scoreboard. And it's a picture of us praying to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his plentiful harvest. Stop looking around for how God is going to answer your prayer. Listen, people of God, people of Ephesus now become Redeemer Church. <laughs> Sorry. To me, this will always be Ephesus Church. I'm really trying hard to get that straight. Okay. You're up there. You're up there. You're on the jumbotron. You're up there. Okay. You and I, were the answer. We're the answer to this prayer that the Lord of the harvest to this great plentiful harvest, even in mind of the scarcity of the labors, would send laborers into His harvest. There's only two options on the menu. Send or be sent. Okay? Hold the rope or be holding the candle on the end of the rope. Every one of us has something to contribute. We can pray. We can give. We can encourage. Those of you who teach children, those hearts, every, every single child in this body is a potential candle bearer. To the darkest, most remote, most unreached people group on this planet. And it's easy to laugh at that, but that's real. We, this place is a nursery. And Redeemer Church should, like every church, should be a nursery to nurture hearts for love to bring the gospel and God's greatest cause to the nations. To the work, to the work, to the work. God, help us be faithful to this cause. Amen.